The Accidental Entrepreneur is produced by Mindhacker Law and brought to you through our affiliate relationships with the following sponsors. One of One Productions, the New Jersey-based podcast studio that produces and edits both audio and video podcasts. They sell equipment for the average podcaster and have even created a guesting kit exclusively for our listeners. North Authentic, the conscious hair care marketplace offering the cleanest brands from around the world. The Healthy Place, the e-commerce site with thousands of supplements to help you live a healthier life, along with natural solutions for chronic pain, stress, anxiety, depression, sleeplessness, and much, much more. And be sure to support the podcast by ordering some logo merchandise from our online store. Listen to all of our sponsors' commercials later in this episode and follow their links in the show notes to learn more about their products and services. Uh, but, you know, it just really comes down to it. It's hard. I understand it's hard. I make the mistake still myself. Um, but the idea is, is to imagine who is your early adopter, who is going right. to, your ideal if you were going to sell your product in a retail store, who's right. spending the night out. Right. It's not necessarily demographics based, right? It doesn't matter what age they are or their gender or their race or their income. It's what is the need that you're, that you're addressing that is shared by this community of people. And it's good. Right. It's powerful to imagine it as a community of people. They would all come and they would all, they don't, maybe they would not like each other outside of this one need that they share, right? right? So you're imagining who that customer is. And then you're going out into the real world and you're finding as many of them as you can. And you're talking to them, but you're not pitching them your idea. You're not asking them for what features they want. You're not asking them, would you pay for this? Or you're not asking them to predict their own future. Human beings are horrible at predicting their own future. Yeah. So it's it's the, it, it takes some skill to learn how to do those interviews, um, but you can learn it. And there's a bunch of ways to teach it. I've got a, a course that's going up on startupbluebook.com to teach it. Okay. There's a bunch of design thinking people that teach it. You give me um, a link. We'll so there's a bunch of... The information provided in these episodes is for entertainment purposes only. It is not a guarantee of success or to be construed as advice of any kind. You should always seek advice from local licensed professionals before making any decisions. The dictionary defines an entrepreneur as a person who organizes and manages any enterprise, especially a business, usually with considerable initiative and risk. People often start a business without much choice, perhaps due to a job loss or just being dissatisfied at work, and they come up with an idea they just know can be successful. They become entrepreneurs by accident. That is to say their success or failure happens by accident, not with intention. My name is Mitch Beinhacker. I'm a corporate attorney and a business advisor. You're listening to The Accidental Entrepreneur, my podcast about how to achieve success on purpose, not by accident. Join me along with our monthly guests where we share our knowledge and help you get a hold of your business. And now on to today's episode. Hey, everyone. Happy to be here. I'm Brant Cooper, CEO and founder of Moves the Needle. We bring an entrepreneurial spirit to large businesses. Uh, Also the the author of several books, uh, the New York Times bestseller, The Lean Entrepreneur, and then from November last year, published by Hachette, uh, Disruption Proof. Uh, Those apply both to big businesses as well as uh, startup entrepreneurs and small businesses who are trying to uh, drive the change they want to see in the world. Okay, everyone, welcome to another episode of The Accidental Entrepreneur. I'm Mitch Beinhacker. Got a special guest from the West Coast. We're on the East Coast today, so we've got about a three-hour difference here. 
And if you are listening on your favorite podcast directory, be sure and give us a five-star review wherever possible. If you're watching us on YouTube, hit that like button, subscribe to the feed so you can keep getting good information and we can keep bringing good content like the conversation we're having today. So I want to welcome my guest today, Brant Cooper. Uh, Brant is a, correct me if I'm wrong, Brant, but you're uh, not only an entrepreneur and you work in corporate America, but you're also an author. We're going to put links to your books in the show notes. And uh, maybe you want to introduce yourself and we'll talk about your background and your training and you know your whole your whole journey to where where you got today. And then we can share all the good thoughts for entrepreneurs and things that I'm yeah, sure you have a lot of good yeah, advice. Thanks, Mitch. Thanks, Mitch, for having me. I it's it's a great title of a podcast because I am an accidental entrepreneur. Yeah. I've I sort of <laughs> never considered myself an entrepreneur. Seriously. It's just, I know you don't you don't know how many people say that. And it's true. Yeah. It's true. I, it's true. I always thought, you know, coming out of college, I think that there was, you know, the startup scene wasn't that well known yet. There were companies like HP and Intel that were doing very well, but it wasn't sort of hip. You know, I right. I don't think startups became hip until the to the mid mid to late nineties. You know, right. maybe when the word founder became like a, a real word. You know, right? Yeah. <laughs> Suddenly, we put that into yeah, all like of our founders. Bios, right? Oh, yeah. I'm a founder. <laughs> like, really? Yeah, it's funny, but it's true. yeah. So. So I always thought that the entrepreneur was the the one with the big idea, you know, like the visionary and you get right. the eureka moment. And right. But that's very, very, very rare. It's very, very rare. It's yeah. it, I, I call it the myth of the visionary. It's right. not Good how point. businesses typically start yeah. up and, and, and succeed. So, no, so I love the accidental entrepreneur because guess we, you know, guess what? We all have to be entrepreneurial. Yeah. And, uh, and and that's really sort of what I discovered along my journey. I, I I got a job after college, like everybody else does, and and I used to sit on the front stoop of my my uh, little craftsman house in in the Washington D.C. era area, and right. go like, really, okay, this is the rest of my life. It's nine yeah, to five. I mean, that's, this is we I'm didn't doing. know any better, right? We just were told right. that's what you do. So yeah, right. So after a year of that, though, I dropped out and went and wrote the great American novel, which was definitely American, but not great. And, uh, and, but it was that first, I'm not going to do it the way everybody else is doing it. Right. And that was super empowering because it sort of takes a confidence or a faith in yourself that you're going to be able to go figure it out. You're going to be able to take care of your own economy. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a lot of people that don't do that. Or if they do it, they do it like 20 years later, not a year later. Right. So, right. you know, a lot of more power. Too. Right. And then there's other people that, for whatever reason, are are willing to take that dive right away and multiple right. times. And so. Right. So That's that wasn't me. Person. I had to. That I just like. Yeah. So then, yeah. you know, what was interesting about that is that I it allowed me to go back into the job force, yeah. the workforce, but knowing that I could leave at any time. And I, I kind of joke that the first couple of jobs I had when I went back into the workforce after the failure of, of getting the book published, uh, you know, my managers were sort of passed me around like a hot potato because nobody, nobody wanted to manage me. And maybe it was because I was a bad employee or maybe it was because I wanted to do things my own way. And so you in were most difficult companies, to manage. Like you didn't follow what they told right. you to do. You're like, I'm going to figure it out a right. better one. Yeah. Okay. Right. That's what young people and, do. It's what young people do. And also it's what most companies hate. Right. Yeah. And so right. that was, they didn't like it. So it was then in the late nineties that I joined my first startup. And that again, was sort of my second epiphany maybe was that 
wow, there actually are companies that want you to go do it your way, that they want you to figure it out, that they're not going to sit on top of you and tell you how to do it. Your job is to go drive impact in the business however you can, and you have to go do it. And so that was, to me, what I consider a, a key part of what I call the entrepreneurial spirit. So I wasn't the founder of that company, but all of the early employees had to have that entrepreneurial spirit. So even if they weren't ready to take the leap to go start their own business and risk all of their money and right, and of all of that. Not a lot of people want. They exhibited the spirit of, right. I'm going to go figure out how to drive impact in the business. And so that's really what's driven my career since the late 90s is writing about that, teaching it to other people, learning, yeah. continuing to learn how to of do course. it, how to do it inside of big businesses. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's a little bit of tilting at windmills, perhaps, but it's uh, it's an exciting way to work and it's fun and, and rewarding when it when it when it actually happens. Right. You know, I think and correct me if I'm wrong, if you disagree, that's completely OK. Um, I think there's a lot of larger corporations, maybe not enormous corporations. But there's a lot of larger corporations that when you really, you know, sit down and you talk to the management, they want people to be more entrepreneurial. But they either don't know how to do it or they're afraid what the ramifications are. Or they got these wild people that aren't going to listen and all these types of stuff. So they they want the result of people being, you know, self-driven and motivated and innovative and all these types of things. But they're afraid to like let the, you know, let the horse out of out of the barn. I think, I think if you look at the pandemic, you know, and all the work from home stuff, I, I think there were a lot of corporates that were very reluctant to do that. But now that they see the productivity that they get out of their employees and how it's affected quality of life. As a matter of fact, I think we're working harder than we were before when we had to go to an office because we had, you know, we're only in the office. Then you get to decompress, come at home and whatever. Now they can, you can go home, do something. They got to jump on a call at eight o'clock at night. No, you know, so I think that now, so I think maybe it's, they got to give it a try, but I think that's the reluctance of uh, maybe I'm wrong. No, I agree. I think you're spot on. I mean, I I think that especially in this digital world that we live in, everybody sort of recognizes that the world has changed. The pandemic really drove it home. It was happening before the pandemic. Right. But but the pandemic really drove it home. Yeah. Right. And all the most successful companies during the pandemic tended to be digital companies. Yeah. And I've got some case studies in my last book, Disruption Proof. Yeah. Well, they were prepared for it, really. Right. Right. The ones that were prepared for whatever disruption might happen are the ones that then were able to respond. And a lot of that is then, you know, what I've been teaching. It's just agility and understanding customers deeply, not just asking them for feature requirements and running experiments and doing all of these things in what I call the exploration mode, which is you admit that you don't know. So the pandemic hits and you admit that you're, you don't know how to serve your market anymore because the budgets have gone away. So you actually have to go into learning mode or exploration mode to figure it out again. And lo and behold, it's actually what human beings are wired for. We are yeah. wired for learning mode. We are born unlike a deer, a fawn. We're born right. not able to walk, not yeah. able to talk. It's not right? I mean, so we're yeah. we're purely in learning mode. And then, right. you know, the way our education system is and much of our workforce during the industrial age, we want that like driven out of people by the time they're 18 years old. Right. Well, that, but that's the industrial age, right? That's the workforce. That's the getting people ready for work. But now you really got to get them ready to be more independent, free thinkers, figure it out. We don't just, we're born. And as we grow, we just uh, somehow figure out math. It just starts in our head. It's like we can walk. It's not, it's not like that. So I think, yeah, I I think it's, uh, it's, it's, 
it, this is an interesting conversation at an interesting time in, in history. Like really crazy things are happening, right? Well, what's interesting too is like thinking about pre-industrial revolution, everybody yeah. was sort of responsible for their economy too. And you had tons of farmers that were independent farmers. You had craft right. people and there was all sorts of crazy political systems, feudal systems and all the rest of it. Crazy stuff. Often meant that they didn't get to keep their stuff. So crazy stuff. But I think, you know, a couple of centuries from now, the industrial this is why I don't really like calling things first industrial age and second industrial age, because the actual manufacturing, do what you're told, hierarchical command and control is going to be a blip on human history. It's going to be this tiny blip compared to, yep. Compared to like the emerging gig economy and freelancers and everybody becoming responsible for their own economy again, which was before the revolution and now is after the digital revolution. It's going to be that way. Yeah. And so well, all our what was, institutions- the, what was the group that was like when once the industrial age was coming around, all these machines were being invented and it's going to get rid of people, the Luddites or something that, oh, we're right. going to ever, nobody's going to have jobs anymore. We're not going to work. You can't, you got to make clothing. What do you mean we can't, the machine's going to do this. Nobody's going to have a job anymore. You know, and it's kind of the same thing, right. but it's just shifts. It doesn't go away. You know, we just got to learn shifts. and do it differently. It shifts. It's and it's interesting. You know, you talk to economists, and they can distinguish between automation that is likely to create new jobs, net new jobs, right, versus automation that will create net fewer jobs, right. And so you can make it part of economic or industrial policy that you're favoring the former versus the latter, and it would be a smart thing to do because that's actually what's going to, as long as as long as this a society. We're as long as we're obsessed with growth and everything has to be year over year growth, then you actually have to cho- uh, choose those type of technologies that uh, create the jobs or right. don't really leave people behind. Yeah, right. Yeah. All right. So let, let's talk more about that, because, you know, the theme of this podcast, the reason I started it um, two, uh, three years ago, I guess, um, is because of these conversations that I was having with uh, clients. I'm a small business attorney about, you know, they weren't doing, they were accidentally going into business. They were starting up because they're really excited about an idea, but they didn't do the research to figure out if anybody wanted their product, were they going to make any money on the product? I mean, just because it's a great idea doesn't mean it should be, should be a business. I mean, it's a, That's like, you don't go hand in hand, you know, that. It, so I think a lot of people would skip those steps and they didn't use the, the, the tried and true steps. And those tried and true steps don't have to be like, you know, analysts at McKinsey, you could you could be an entrepreneur, and you could be not somebody who came out of Harvard Business School um, or any other business school for that matter, and and still get there. Because I, I think the whole thing about the lean entrepreneur, and uh, if you've ever read any of um, Mike McCallowitz's books, the Toilet Paper Entrepreneur, which is way back, one of his early books. You know, it's all about scarcity. It's all about bootstrapping. It's all about figuring out how to do it with less and making more as a result of it, which is a big problem. I guess. Um, but maybe we can talk about that. Yeah, well, so I think that the I think that the key insight to to those uh, philosophies is that in the digital age, especially, we know we can create the product. There's right. not a lot of technology risk, and so when people are coming up with new ideas, they're not they're not coming up with ways, you know, new jet propulsion systems. They're coming, right. they're coming up with ideas for a new app, and so. 
but the mentality still is I need to build the app. I need to prove that I can, you know, build something. Right. And that that's going to be, and then everybody will come and buy it because it's such a great idea, but we know that we can build it. It's not where the risk is. And a matter of fact, we know how we can build it in such a way that people can afford it. So there's really not an operational risk. We know we can outsource it. We know how to, I mean, it's not necessarily cheap and we don't want to build cheap stuff, but it's known. It's not an unknown. There's not uncertainty around it. Right. So the question then becomes, well, should we build it? Right. And so the whole idea around using the word lean is that lean means it's it's reducing waste as much as possible. It doesn't mean necessarily bootstrapping or necessarily okay. not spending money or necessarily being small. It means being physically fit. It means being muscular. Like smart you want about to be muscular it. And you're smart about it. You're eliminating the waste. So fat is waste. You're eliminating the fat. And so what you want to do really is, and again, the other huge benefit of this is that you can start these as side hustles and you don't have to leave yeah. your job to go do it. Right. But you're you're out there validating the idea. You're actually busting your own assumptions. You're cutting through your own biases in order to create market-based evidence that you have something that you ought to be working on. Right. And you're setting your milestones such that you're getting investments, whether it's your own money or somebody else's, based upon continued learning, based upon achieving milestones that right. are indicating that you're progressing towards success. Right. And so this is the other really big challenge inside it's of business. huge challenge. Everyone does it the opposite. They're, they're, right. They got shiny uh, object syndrome. I, so they I not only have shiny you. objects, but they want to focus on what they're doing instead yeah. of what is the impact of what they're doing. Right. right. So it's all task management. I'm going to put all my to-do lists on a list Right. And, and that's how I measure my productivity as opposed to, well, wait a second, what's the outcome supposed to be for all of those things that I'm doing? Is that outcome actually happening? Like it's classic yeah. in the big enterprises, right? Well, I was on time and under budget. Yeah, but nobody brought the, bought the product. Right, nobody bought the thing. You didn't that ask wasn't my that. responsibility, you right. Well, but, right. The, you but you, measure, it's like you, you said, that's, there's me. no risk on that <laughs> side. People don't like risk. Right. They don't like failure. And you know, sometimes it's better what they don't know. They don't want to know. They don't want to lift up the... The well, veil and say, oh, is, but that's actually know. higher risk, right? Much higher. <laughs> risk, much higher risk. I can't tell you how many people come to me and they're, they're, uh, their business is failing. And, you know, they have a, this seemingly interest, let's not call it great, seemingly interesting product or concept or service. And I'm like, well, let's, I don't know, let's take a look at your business plan or, or your strategic plans or, or your marketing analysis. That, and they don't have any of it. They, you know, well, I asked a lot of people. It really turns out they asked like six of their best friends. And right. that's not market research. And the ones I've met, you, I'm sure you have too, on the podcast, off the podcast for clients that are consistently successful in business, do what you say. They're not on the other side building it. They know they can do that, but they have to right. fix it, test it, break it, make sure people want it first. Because even though they know they can right. build, they may still build it wrong. Right. What That's people right. really and want and what you much. think they want doesn't right, doesn't match up. It rarely matches up. So I, yeah, I think really, that is like the key to success in business is doing it the way you said. You got to climb that wall first. Forget about all the stuff. If you have a concept, great. Make draw a picture. Don't do anything more than that. Research well, the listen, market. I, I, I didn't invent this stuff. 
No, I know I that. Didn't, I, I didn't I know invent that. this. And, I, not, and so I'm just saying, I I, 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 had, I totally admit it. We came up with all of these things, the different people that were writing about this by looking at the startups that were successful and how they operated. Right. And it was test, 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 test. Yeah. You don't believe your own BS. Don't believe your own assumptions. And we're look comfortable and, with and their own BS. Data. Makes them feel good. Right. Well, yeah. and it's, listen, we joke about it, but it's scary and it's hard. I've had my own ideas that I don't want to go test my assumptions because I don't want somebody to tell me my baby's ugly. Right. Well, so if you, you know, you sure. you, if, if you don't ask people, but you're just going to fail anyway. So not, what does it then, matter? I don't know. If people, <laughs> look, Brand, I think that business, if people, and I agree with you, these concepts and these processes have been around. You didn't invent them. I didn't invent them, which begs the question of why. So why is business success, failure so high? It's because people don't do it. They don't get the books. They don't read about it. They don't test it. They're not, they're afraid to find out what the real answer is, I think. Subconsciously. Well, right. I agree with you. But it's also, I think it does really go back to the myth of the visionary. I mean, so the media and successful entrepreneurs want to tell the story that it was all about them. Right. Yeah. So it's really kind of crazy in our society, the people that we hold up as Ego being the most amazing right? people. Jeff, uh, Zuckerberg Bezos. and right. and Jeff Bezos, Jeff Bezos, Mark Bezos Zuckerberg. Another one. Right, yeah, exactly. Right, right. And yeah, I just combined them, I guess. Yeah. Elon Musk. It's the same. And so we want to attribute to them this genius. And a matter of fact, they built very successful companies. Don't get me wrong, but none yeah. of it was really like visionary. It wasn't genius. And right. it, of course, it's absurd to apply their maybe it was genius because it wasn't visionary. Right. Yeah. No, it's true. Look at Jeff Bezos because he just that, said. I'm just going to sell everything and we're going to start with books. Right, right. And, and then he's got to hustle to win, right? So it comes down to the hustle, not the visionary status. Right, the hard And thing. so the, it's crazy that we then build these gurus up and then, apply. oh, they must be gurus in politics and all these right. other things too. They're that's not. just insanity. But so that's the that's the myth of the visionary though, is that we build up these people and we build up uh this idea that they were all like messing with computer chips. And I mean, it's, it's a right. hilarious story about like uh, Steve Jobs, like uh, Ross Perot. Remember Ross Perot? He uh, yeah. ran for president as an independent, what, in like 96 or something like that. And he invested in in Steve Jobs' second company when he was booted out of Apple. He went to Next and started this company. Right now, and, I remember Next, yeah. And Perot, Perot invested in that. And Perot literally told this story. He goes like, well, the reason why I invested was because Steve Jobs dropped out of college and he was messing around with computer chips in his in his uh, garage, and he uh, he put his dad brought him in uh, like a wooden crate and he created the first computer out of this wooden crate in these. That's, computer that's chips. not even a true story, is it? No, there's nothing true about that story. <laughs> like, there's like zero. I know. Didn't they go? It's, didn't Jobs and his group go to like? Hewlett Packard or Wang computer or somewhere where they demoed something that had a mouse or whatever. And the company said, you know, we've been playing around with this. We don't really want it. Do you guys want it? Because we're going to throw it out. And they that said, was, sure. That was just the user. That was just the user interface. And it was Xerox. But that's a true story. OK, yeah. That, but, I remember I read that. But the way they started. The yeah. Yeah. The way they started was like they went to a guy and said, hey, we can build you. Uh, we can build you these computer motherboards. And, you know, do you want to buy them? And the guy goes, okay, I'll see what you got. And so uh, Steve Wozniak and, and, and uh, is really was a technical genius, put together right. these things. And they, they like brought over a bag of computer chips to this guy. And the guy's like, are you kidding me? No, 
could, you could put this stuff together and show me that it works. You know, so right. it's like, even that way, it was sort of iterating on trying to figure that's, out what the market that's real life and stuff like that's that. Not, yeah, but, it's, it's but that doesn't sell well if it's in the movies or in a book. No, exactly right. Uh, but genius. the the Isaacson book on Steve Jobs is just genius and tells all those stories. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, it just really comes down to it. It's hard. I understand it's hard. I make the mistake still myself. Um, but the idea is, is to imagine who is your early adopter, who is going right. to, your ideal if you were going to sell your product in a retail store, who's right. spending the night out. Right. It's not necessarily demographics based, right? It doesn't matter what age they are or their gender or their race or their income. It's what is the need that you're, that you're addressing that is shared by this community of people. And it's good. Right. It's powerful to imagine it as a community of people. They would all come and they would all, they don't, maybe they would not like each other outside of this one need that they share, right? right? So you're imagining who that customer is, and then you're going out into the real world and you're finding as many of them as you can, and you're talking to them, but you're not pitching them your idea. You're not asking them for what features they want. You're not asking them, would you pay for this? Or you're not asking them to predict their own future. Human beings are horrible at predicting their own future. Yeah. So it's it's the, it it takes some skill to learn how to do those interviews, um, but you can learn it. And there's a bunch of ways to teach it. I've got a, a course that's going up on startupbluebook.com to teach it. Okay. There's a bunch of design thinking people that teach it. You give me um, a link. We'll so there's the a bunch notes. of, yeah. So there's a bunch of ways that these are, are, are there's ways to, to learn this. Um. And so it's getting out there and trying to understand these people deeply. It's understanding what drives them, what motivates them, what yeah. needs they have, how important those needs are, and uh, understanding what their aspirations are. And you're trying to look, you're finding patterns, right? Here's this group of people that seems to have this need and this environment that I can work with. And, and so that's who I'm now going to I'm going to maybe put them on a customer advisory board. Not this is who I'm going to go work with. Yeah, in I love advisory to, boards. Yeah, yeah. In well, I think a lot of people think out. they know what their customer likes and wants and needs. Right. The most successful people I know, even in small business, are always questioning that. Here's a word from our sponsors. Looking to get into podcasting? Maybe to market your business for your own enjoyment or because you have a message you want to get out there. One of One Productions is a New Jersey-based studio just over the George Washington Bridge that caters to the booming business of podcasting. They offer a comfortable atmosphere using the latest technology available to record your podcast. And they are a full-service media company offering both audio and video production services, creating both audio and video podcasts as well as video shorts for business and personal use. Professional audio equipment packages are available through their website for all budgets, and be sure to check out their podcast guesting kit created specially for our listeners. Care for your health, care for the planet, and look flipping great doing it. North Authentic is a conscious hair care marketplace offering the cleanest brands from around the world. Their pro stylists curate only the most fabulous non-toxic hair products with better for you shampoos, serums, masks, and more that actually give you gorgeous hair without hurting your health or the planet. Hey, you've only got one life, one planet, and one glorious mane. Might as well treat them all as best you can, right? Try a 100% clean hair care routine prescribed just for you using their link in the show notes. If you don't see a big, beautiful difference in how your hair looks and feels, you can tell them they're crazy. Do you battle chronic pain, stress, anxiety, or depression? 
Well, if you take any supplements or you're interested in natural alternatives, you need to know about findyourhealthyplace.com. Find Your Healthy Place has thousands of supplements to help you live a better quality of life, as well as natural solutions for chronic pain, stress, anxiety, depression, sleeplessness, and much, much more. Need guidance? Use their live chat feature and talk to a wellness consultant right on their website. And be sure to use our coupon code TAEPODCAST for all your purchases to get the best prices at findyourhealthyplace.com. Follow their links in the show notes to learn more about all of our sponsors. And now back to our show. They never accept, you know, their idea of what the customer is. They want to know from the customer. They test, test, test. Even when they come up with a new product and they're tweaking and changing, they ask again. They never stop asking. As a matter of fact, the most successful ones. But people fall into that trap, don't you think? They fall into the trap of believing in their mind because we're such smart people that we know what the customer wants. We don't have to ask the customer. I know what they want. This is what they want. And 90% of the time, they're wrong. By the way. But I think we're having a good conversation because I think we, we, people need to know, how do you get out of that trap? You know, how, do you, how do you do it the right way? You're the, we'll call you the guru today. No, you don't want to be called the guru. Right. Yeah. So it's really, it's just, you know, I think the most powerful part is admitting when you don't know something. Yeah. Right. So that's that's what opens up your ability to go learn and explore. And uh, and that's tough. Like you were saying, everybody. No, I understand this. I know it. And and oftentimes right. people are solving their a problem that they have or a need that they want to address. Nobody else cares. But, yeah. I mean, the research shows that the number one reason why startups fail is because there's not a market for their product. Oh, yeah. Okay. And then and then number two reason is, is premature scaling. And so that means that yeah, they actually, grow too fast. They grow too fast. And they build too much product. And so and they, they have, can't sell it. Got it. They can't. They, they, so they've, they've, they found something, which is yeah. great. But especially if you're a startup and you bring on investors, the investors are like, all right, now it's growth mode. And you're like, no, wait a second. Right. And then you get a, stuff a we warehouse have to full out. of stuff and you don't know how to sell it and get it out there. Yep. Yeah. Yep. That's why a lot of warehouses yeah. full of crap. Right. So, so as a, as a founder, so there's kind of two stages there. As a founder, if you are just starting out, you have yeah. to, okay, what do I not know about my customers? And, and, and if I say that I know, then it shouldn't be any problem for me to go find a handful of them. And it's not like you have to make, we're not going for like statistical significance here. Right. You're just trying to find 10 people and then you're trying to find 25 people and then you're right. trying to find 50 people. I had this entrepreneur that I was helping in, in Madison, Wisconsin, he built a, an app where you would choose a piece of clothing and hit the shuffle button and it would finish the wardrobe for you. And, and I go, okay, sounds oh, cool. Okay. How many, use, how many customers do you have? Zero. Well, how can I help you? Well, I want a thousand customers. Well, that's what he said. And I, ha- I want a thousand customers. How many do you have? Zero. I go, well, go find one. Go one, uh, find one. Can you get a hundred from the people that he knows? Can you get a hundred? <laughs> right. Yeah. Did they care? Right. I so, guess I mean, not. Like, <laughs> so what did it do? It took like my shirt, for example, and then it said, yeah. "Oh, you should match this kind of pants, this color shoes, that type of yeah. thing." Okay. Yeah. It sounds like yeah. a, some people can't pick wardrobes. There are services right. that pick wardrobes for you, so it sounds like a good concept. Yeah. What was his problem? Well, his problem is that he had never talked to customers, and so he maybe oh, he's maybe a, he's had an, an inventor. I don't know. Right. Exactly. So <laughs> right. I was like literally telling. I was literally telling him. Uh, he had to go and find, just go find one person willing to push the shuffle button. Okay. 
That can't be hard. You would think. Yeah, be hard to find ten people. Yeah, everyone wears clothes. I think right. There's no. There's not like a nudist colony where he lives, and they don't wear clothes. Uh, right. So go find one, and then who who's willing to push that shuffle button, and and what is their engagement like? And so observation ends up being a really super powerful way to learn about your customers. Yeah. And so a lot of like the people that say I don't need to talk to my customers, they they actually quote people like. Uh, you know, Henry Ford, who never really said this, if I had asked people what they wanted, they would have wanted a faster horse. But that isn't even a very good excuse. I mean, if you're an entrepreneur, right. you go, they want to have a faster horse. Well, what if I put a steam engine? Yeah, on a it's cart? how you ask the right. question. Well, it's what you do with the answer. It's how you come right. up with the answer. Well, that's true. And the same thing with uh, there's stories that Steve Jobs would hire uh, uh, would hide in bushes and watch people go in and out and and interact inside the Apple store because he wanted to learn. Right. Did he? I don't know if that one's no. true or not. That sounds that makes more sense. Like he he kind of seems like that. He might be that kind of guy actually, right. or what would have been that kind of guy, but. He also, to me, he understood his market segment very deeply. So it was that same sort of thing that I'm thinking about community, right? He he used to say, people want stuff that works. They want elegant solutions that just work. Yeah. And so those are the people that he hired. He had thousands of his customers in his offices. So they didn't necessarily have to go out and interview a bunch of random people. They were all right there. Yeah. And this is an advantage of a lot of consumer-oriented big brands could be doing that they don't necessarily do very well is their customers are actually inside their walls. There's absolutely no- Yeah, they have enough to, to right. Yeah, they don't have to go yep. out to the world. They have them right there. Right, so it's it's more challenging for startup entrepreneurs and it's more challenging. Uh, now we're finally getting post-pandemic, you know, you can get out of the the building again, you know, during right. Zoom calls, that was kind of t- that was kind of tough. But it's really just imagining who your ideal customer is and then going out in the real world and understanding the context. What are the needs that you're addressing? So why are they choosing this this product? You can use competitors' products to run experiments. You can do all sorts of analogies out there in the marketplace. Why are they... Why are they trying to address this need? And what is the environment around addressing that need? What else has to be in place for you to be able to put a new product in, right? So all products and services are asking people to change their behavior. So this is why it's hard. This is why starting a business is hard. You're asking people to change their behavior and human beings don't really change their behavior very often. And they don't do it. They don't do it just because of rationality, right? We all do things that we know are unhealthy or not the right things for us. And we do them and they're habits and it's hard to break. And so every product or service is asking people to change their behavior. So the more you learn about what's going to drive that behavior change, that actually is your competitive. Yeah. Yeah. It's your competitive differentiation. It matters more than the technology. So I, I, I don't know if you do intellectual property work, so sorry if you a do. A little bit. But the intellectual, the intellectual property stuff is like not that important in most no, startups it's not. and small businesses. No, no. Uh, look, I get people come to me brand the all the time. They're like, "Well, we gotta, I gotta, I gotta file a patent." Well, I'm not a patent attorney, and a trademark. I got a trade. I, I go oh, listen. Oh, maybe yeah. you should just let's make it work and get your business successful, and we'll deal with that later on. You know, I, I don't. Right. You're going to go out and spend, you know, $10,000 doing all this stuff just to file 27 trademarks. And then you're going to go to patent attorney and spend 50 grand on a provisional patent and then yeah. find out nobody gives a shit. Excuse the expression. Right. Well, what's funny too is care. like, if you look at most, if you look at most 
tech startups, the ones that are backed by investors and venture capitalists, none of them have TMs on their their logos or their because they right. know all of that stuff changes. None of that stuff matters until you get product market fit. Right. And so, you know, Airbnb spent a gazillion dollars with their new logo and their tagline and stuff, but it was way after they were very successful. Yeah. And so I, I even try to address this on uh, in my startup blue book courses is that, you know, just by making it live, you're protected. Yeah. Use protects you. Use yes. in commerce and common, common, you know, having around more and more and more improve. There is common law protection of your work of trademarks. Yep. You don't have to be registered. It gives you more protection, but it doesn't yep. just somebody could just steal. It doesn't work that way. Yep. And the other part I always point out, and this is especially true with uh, patents, the intellectual property side of, you know, the patent side is, yeah. what are you going to do if somebody steals it? Well, that's another uh, problem, right? I mean, you can't, you know, you don't have the money have to some pretty deep pockets. You barely have the money to get the patent. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, look, if you're going on, if you got some proven concept, you're going on Shark Tank and these guys got a lot of money. They want to know if you have a patent, they can protect the patent. You know, there's divisions of Microsoft and all these other companies that buy patents just so they can go and enforce them and so forth. It's a whole industry, but people just, yeah, I yeah. think that small business owners, I you can't imagine how many small business owners I've met. They got boxes of stuff that they've invented, created, had made, whatever. They're, they're still figuring out why these people, why it's not being bought. They don't really understand their customer. They'll tell you what their ideal client profile is. Let's call it right. Avatar. But it's I don't mostly really based on demographics, though. Or it's based on what they think. Like they didn't come up with it anyway. It's just their opinion. Right. It's who they want to. Well, so that's I, how I look at it. It's who they want to sell to, not who right. necessarily is going to buy the product. Well, and, what's funny is the the first answer is usually everyone, and then when you right. start it's drilling a stupid down, stupid answer. It, but, <laughs> right. You go out of business selling everyone. I go out of Listen, business to being providing legal services to anyone. No, I I gotta be niched. My 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 uh my target market is seven billion people, and I conservatively estimate that I'm going to get one percent of that. <laughs> yeah, and that's so my good, target right? market is seven hundred million dollars annually. Uh yeah, no, it's funny. Yeah. Well so, yeah, you- so that's the Go ahead. No, I was just saying it's recognizing data. I just had a guy on my podcast. The episode's not even out yet. And their company makes uh, wireless um, cameras. So you like it was originally made for hunting, right? So let's say they're, they're a Canadian company. So you're up in Canada, right? There's no internet. There's no power. And what these guys would do, they would put these cameras out. They're battery operated that had these little SD cards, right? And then they would have to go around to all of their sites and collect the SD cards and put them in the computer and see and watch the video and see if a bear walked by or, yeah, it's ridiculous. Right. You might as well just sit there, right? And, you're, and pee in your underwear. So, but I'm not a big hunter. So, and, and, and this guy invented this camera that was uh, solar based and also could access, uh, you know, was wireless with, uh, through, you can get internet service, just pay for internet service for the camera, right? So now this data, so then these two guys, he knew them, he came on board, they brought them on for sales, whatever. They knew nothing about cameras. They knew nothing about technology. They weren't, they were finance guys, they were marketing guys. They started noticing that there was this very small group of people that were buying these cameras, but were not hunters because they were only selling them at hunting stores. Like even at Target, it was in the hunting section. It was in the hunting and fishing section. So they started analyzing the data and they started doing research They started talking to people, running focus groups, talking to everybody. And they realized that there was a much bigger market 
and use for this device than just hunting. People would use it at plants and, and big industrial sites where they didn't have internet yet. They didn't have power. And you know, it brought their business literally brand from like 15 million in sales to 150 million in sales. And they started raising capital. Now they're a 200 million dollar company because, awesome. because he brought in these guys that knew nothing about what he did. They were not inventors. Right. They didn't know anything. And he says, yeah, well, we were just friends with them. And he, they said, well, can you make a better, figure out a better way for us to make the cameras faster? Because I'm getting all these extra orders. But it's paying attention to your customer and the data and what's going on. I thought it was an interesting case study. It is interesting. And you know what's interesting about it is that you're actually bringing in people that, like you said, they don't know, right? And so, again, they have to go explore. And they're going to say, why so is that happening? He never even noticed it. Right. Yeah. Right. So the other thing that that businesses mistake that that is like founders, even if they've got a little bit of traction, they start hiring people that are like them, yeah, as opposed to people Big that are time. different than them, right? And so the bringing in people that are different, like in the example that you just showed, yeah, is actually what enables you to go figure out something new. If you bring in people that are just like you, then you're trying to double down and execute only on what is known. And so what you need to do is understand. Okay, this is the known part. We should automate this or give it to lower paid, lower skilled people that can, you know, execute this blueprint. But then I need this other team or me, especially the founders responsible is what is the next step? What is the where's the uncertainty? What is what is keeping us from growing to the next level? I don't know. Okay, we have to go figure it out. And I have to bring in people that will help me figure that out. Right. Because they saw something. That he didn't see. And the funny thing is he brought them on. I, I still forget why, because he needed to, to create a better um, product line, a better product line in terms of being able to make the product faster than they were making it. And they well, started developing, but they weren't were engineers. Gonna... These guys had no technical right. background. I'm wondering if he wanted to bring in people that would market and sell to hunters better. And so yeah, that was part was of all it, like, yeah. I'll bring in a, I'll bring in the 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 sales and the and the marketing people, and they don't know hunters, but they can learn that. And instead, what they did is learned that there was all this other opportunity. It's huge, right? Exactly. And his brother was the finance guy, so they brought him in and started looking at these numbers and say, "Wait, this doesn't make any sense," because they could tell where these things were being used because of the because right. it because it had GPS on it and the, the internet. It was using the cellular right. service. They could tell yeah. that it was not in a hunting site. And then they started looking into where is it? Well, so that's another great point, though, right there, is that the metrics that you're tracking are super important. And that metric was a win there, yeah. right? So yeah, what I try to teach data. people, what I teach people is that, so you've got your group of people now and you've gotten, you get them their the minimum viable product. And, and so that it's not the fully finished product, but you're starting to put it out into those first 25, 50 customers. Yeah. You need to hypothesize. How are they going to use the product in order to get value out of it that I've promised them? Okay. Right. So if it, if you're using the hunter model, well, we should see it out in these particular areas and we should see that it's active, you know, so many hours a day. We should see that it's actually shooting at night because that's when the animals come out or whatever right. it is. I'm just yeah. falling there. No, they had data you analytics. Have, right. But you, but it's not like business intelligence. It's not like no. I need to look at reams of data. It's a hypothesis of this is how the product's going to be used. And then looking at the data and determining is the product being used this way? That's exactly. If the answer is no, right. Right. If the answer is no, then the next question is why? Right. It's, it's yeah. got to be different customers 
or our metric was wrong yeah or the product's not working and so there's okay. only really only three possibilities and you can go figure that out and suddenly just because you hypothesize that metric you've learned like these guys opened up oh, a whole 10 new times market. yeah whole, yeah they couldn't keep up with so the So then what you have to do with that metric is okay this is our hunter metric and then this is our industrial site metric and then this is you know whoever else the plant the agriculture metric right and so you're actually figuring out the different use patterns and different use cases and when i create personas for those different markets I'm actually describing who they are, what their behaviors are, what their characteristics are that are unique to the circumstance of the way that product's being used. Yeah. And now the powerful thing about that, Mitch, is that they go, you can go to the engineering team and go like, okay, this is Rod from the industrial site. We're building this feature for him. Right. Oh, this is this is Mitch from the agricultural site. We're building this product for him. And so your engineers now are engineering solutions to problems and needs that specific people have rather than this kind of general guess yeah. of what might be needed out there. Yeah, these guys and these marketing guys were smart. They recognized that we need to start a new product line because I can't convince. I don't want to go out and try and convince people at a, at a commercial site that they should be buying a camera that's used in hunting. So it was oh, basically, yeah. I think it's basically the same product. So they started a new product, yeah. several product lines, different brand yeah. names, right? So then, because yeah. you're not going to buy the product that's Cabela's, you know, for hunting, you want to buy the product that's used on the industrial site or, or for security purposes or whatever. <clears throat> and they took what was the company at the time and basically spun it off into a product line and then started these other products and formed a bigger company, which is now the, I don't know if it's a public company, but they've raised, you know, $150 million. They, that was when they needed to scale, right? Because now right. they knew that the demand was there. And if they built it right, the demand would go up four five, six, 20 fold or whatever. That's the right time yeah. to raise capital. They had been, um, they had been resisting it for, for a long time, but it's, it's a very interesting case study because not everybody has a product that gives you direct access and allows you to gather data into your system like that. You have to go it's out and you have true. to do it. Yeah, so I'm not saying you can't do it, Brand. I'm saying you got to hit the streets and you got to pick up the phone and you got to connect with people. They had the totally data right, right in front of them. You know, they had well, a big I think advantage. That that's, it's one of the powers of the digital revolution and the internet of things and all that yeah. is that we are getting access to a lot of these products. But you're exactly right. I mean, the ideal way is, is being able to get it from the product. But if not, there are other there are other analogies that you use. Like, for example, uh, you know, if you're selling contact lenses, are people buying, continuing to buy the fluids and, you know, the cleaning solutions or whatever, or right. uh, I guess contact lenses are now almost a subscription model. But the point is, is that even if you have retail products, if you have physical retail products, you need to invent ways of measuring engagement. Yeah. And so you, that's like social media is one way to measure engagement yeah. or you have online forums or things where people talk about their use of the product or problems with their product. You're offering support, not only because you have to offer support, but also because you can measure engagement yeah, data. Right. Sure. You're not going right. to do a focus so, group so just in Iowa. You want to do it all over the country. Right. So they, yeah. so the, the point being is that with the digital revolution, you can invent ways that are digital that measure engagement, even with a, an analog product. Yeah. Do you think a lot of small business owners don't get it when it comes to the use of social media for those kind of purposes, interacting and engaging with their customers? Yeah. The I mean, small I business, think that they're yeah. getting 
I think they're getting better year over year, but it's taken a long time. I mean, Facebook and all the rest have been around for ages. Um, so I think that those companies that are born born in the digital world tend to understand all of that digital stuff. So some of the oh, older ones yeah, with the, the older kids. products, it's a little bit yeah. more difficult. Yeah, my yeah. son, you probably know what this is. When my son comes back, he just graduated college, but he's at the engineering school at Indiana. He comes back to his dad. I'm switching my major. I'm going to major in informatics. You've heard of informatics? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I was like, well, what kind of bullshit major is that? I'm not letting you switch from business <laughs> to some BS thing in marketing. You're just going to let. And, and I got on the phone with one of the, with the advisor or somebody in the department. He goes, no, no, no. We're one of the top five programs in the country. And this is what it is. And he explained it to me. I said, well, that makes sense. It's all data analytics and everything like that. And he's got a great job now in Indiana with uh, an AI company, but um, nice. he gets awesome. it when it comes to, you know, when it comes to all this stuff and, and building technology and, and doing stuff, but I think people have to, you know, take the time to learn. Look, I'll, I'll be honest with you. For six or seven years, I was on LinkedIn. I didn't even know what the hell to do with it. I'm like, what? Why am I even doing this? I have a profile. My friends had to set it up, and uh, good advisor to me passed away about six, seven months ago. And he would say, "You got to get on LinkedIn. That's how you connect. It's all networking." I'm like, what? How am I going to network? And then I started realizing that wait, when I connect with Brand, I also connect with all the people in his circle. And then when I introduce him to somebody else, he connects with people in in those circles. And I started right. realizing when people were reaching out to me, how did they reach out? Oh, because they're connected with you. And it, and it clicked. It was stupid. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, LinkedIn especially is one that works pretty darn well in that way. It's it's maintained yeah. its focus uh, to a certain degree more than say like a YouTube, I think, or a Facebook has. Yeah. Very networking um, oriented. So right. I know we've been on yeah. for a while and you're probably going to get a ringage doorbell again soon, but I wanted to, <laughs> I want I wanted to wrap this up kind of with advice from you. If you're a small business owner and you're a little lost and you're not sure about what you're doing, where you know where do you get started? And what kind of things you should do to get back on the right track of figuring out your business better? Well, so I think that what again one of the traps that founders run into is that they believe that nobody else can do the sort of the technical part, whatever. It's not necessarily really technical, but whatever the the value prop is that is being delivered. A lot of founders will believe that they're the only ones capable of doing that. Right. And, uh, you know, that's okay, but you're not going to grow. Right. You're you limiting it's your myth. Right. Right. And so yeah. you, you really need to pass on what you've learned to other people. And the tough part about that is they are not going to be able to do it at the same level that you can do it, which is okay. So, right. Which is okay. You have yeah. to be okay with it. They still, your customer still has to be happy. So it even kind of comes back with your ability to measure the satisfaction of your customers to ensure that once you're passing it off, that your customers are still loyal and satisfied and passionate and all those type of things. Yeah. But the job of what you're doing then is I'm in explore mode. So once I've passed off that stuff, then I want to ask myself, where's the bottleneck in my growth? And so in my book, The Lean Entrepreneur, I have seven states that a customer goes through from becoming aware to becoming passionate. Okay. And it's guaranteed, so it's aware, I, I, I've heard of the product, it's intrigued, I think the messaging for the product is speaking to me, and it's my needs that I have. And then I, I become trusting because I believe that this product will be right, and I can trust the company that they're able to deliver. I become convinced and I buy. And then I go through this period of hopeful that I hope I made the right decision, and yeah. I need to get that value prop I was passed, I was promised, satisfied, I'm getting the value prop because how I'm using the product is fulfilling the promise that was made to me. And then passion is sort of this bigger aspirational journey that we're on together, the customer and the, and the company. And that could be 
could be, you know, I don't know, Tom's uh, shoes, giving shoes to uh, shoeless people or uh, uh, Zappos giving shoes to people or, you know, it's it, it, so it, it doesn't necessarily have to be philanthropic, but that is one way that brands sort of build that passion. Sure. Um, so your bottleneck founder, your bottleneck is somewhere in those seven states. And so you have to be able to evaluate the data or talking to the customers, try to figure out if I optimize this conversion from, say, aware to intrigued or from uh, trusting to convinced, then I'm going to see revenue growth. Yeah, you should. And, and Right. And so, so that's one way to figure out new growth. Or it could be we've nailed this market. And I want to see more growth. So what do I need to do? I need to build new products for that existing market, or I yeah. need to say, where can I take this product into adjacent markets? So what's a market that's similar to the one that I have now, but different enough that I maybe have to tweak the product and I have to tweak the messaging. I have to tweak what it, that intrigued statement is. Right. And, and my persona is going to be different. So those are all exploration modes of things. Those are getting back to when you first started and I don't know, you're admitting when you don't know. And so you're going off and exploring, how do I get to that next level of growth? So it could be very systematic and be very disciplined approach, which is what I think successful business owners are like. Yeah. And so it's it's coming up with this. Just wing it. Right. It's coming up with that system again. Okay. Now I need to be in exploration mode. I've got people that are covering my existing business. Right. So now I need to be in exploration mode and figure out what's the next way to advance. Um, so, yeah, that would be my advice if that's helpful. No, very helpful. And I'm I'm sure they can get a lot of that in your book, right? In the Lean Entrepreneur? Yeah, the Lean Entrepreneur in particular. Yeah. Okay, good. We'll put a link in the show notes to to the book. And and you have a disrupting book too, right? That disruption. Right. Work. So disruption disruption proof is is geared, you know, a little bit more for bigger companies or okay. fast growing companies. And it, it's really about how to structure and manage work differently in the digital age. Okay. So it's not, if, you know, if you're if you're digitizing your product line or you're going into digital, then I think that it's a relevant book. Um, and and I just it's it, all of the things that we've talked about today, Mitch, is that the you know the whole management command and control of the digital of the industrial revolution is over, and we're still using those management techniques. And so I think that we have to structure companies differently so that the natural behavior is more of this exploration mode that we've been talking about. Yeah. Well, I, I appreciate it. We probably could do a whole episode how to change our entire educational <laughs> system and teach our kids like it's not 1945 anymore, but they That's learn right. as they get older and they grow up in the digital age. So Brent, I can't thank you enough. I know you said you're in San Diego, which is a beautiful town. So you're better off than, although it's sunny here today, which is good. And it's not sunny where I am. So no, it's not for today. <laughs> yeah. So our rain passed. We had some big rain for a couple of days, but uh, I appreciate your time. And, um, and, you know, and, and joining me here and let's uh, definitely stay in touch. I want to keep sharing good thoughts and good, good, helpful ideas for entrepreneurs. Yeah, thanks, Mitch. I appreciate that. And I encourage your listeners to reach out to me. I'm Brant at BrantCooper.com and Brant Cooper on all social media. And I do respond. So people should reach out. And I apologize Absolutely. for those interruptions today. That's Mitch. okay. We'll put but all those like in the show notes. Great too, conversation. So yeah, if yeah. somebody's driving, they're listening to the episode. They don't have to stop and write it down. But yeah. I appreciate you. Uh, you know, being open to people reaching out to you, a lot of people do. So I thank you again. All right. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Accidental Entrepreneur. 
opening and closing music written and performed by Howie Moscovich and made to order music. For more information about Howie and his music services, please follow the link in our show notes. If you like the podcast, please tell others about us. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, on Google Podcasts, on Amazon Music, Spotify, and most of the other podcast directories. If you like what you hear, please leave us a five-star review and feel free to share our episodes on social media. If you have any questions or comments, ideas for the show, or you'd even like to appear as a guest, reach out to us by email at info at the Accidental Entrepreneur is hosted by Mitch Beinhacker and produced by Beinhacker Law. If you'd like to learn more about our business and legal services, you can find us on social media or visit our website at beinhackerlaw.com. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe to our feed to be notified of all future episodes. Thank you.